This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bobink. Welcome to another exciting, wild and woolly episode of Bobcast. I am Andrew Smith, and uh, I'm. <laughs> so dang it. <laughs> What? What's my name again now? Too 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 wild and woolly for you. <laughs> I was gonna say, uh, still thinking on that wooliness. Uh, I was gonna say I am Spartacus, but <laughs> but who are you really? The, that wooliness got me. Uh, I am still known as Caleb Castro uh, for the time being. You got some plans on changing that? Uh, yes, the artist formerly known as Caleb Castro. Uh, and I will use the logo of a uh, miniature schnauzer. Why, though? Well, why not? I mean, why not a chihuahua or a labradoodle? Those don't have beards. I can't wait for next week and Bob Inc. on Beards on Dogs. But more seriously, we are pressing on in Chapter 6 of The Wonderful Works of God. So we see here that the promise to Abraham is at the center of this. And we're also going to see unfolding here in the rest of this chapter Bovink's case, Bovink's argument that the promise to Abraham is not undone by the law. And so we get into this discussion of the law. This particularly picks up at the break on page 62. Bovink says, if this be so, however, the question becomes the more important. Why did God give the law to Israel? And that is a big question. That is a controversial question even now. Many people, many schools, many denominations, many even within the Christian faith have various views on this issue. It should be noted at the outset that Bovink calls the dispensation, if you will, the administration of the covenant beginning with the law, it is a dispensation of the covenant of grace. There is not a substantial change, like, this doesn't become here a covenant of works. We're not back under the system of the garden where you have to do certain works to obtain your salvation, to obtain glorification. This is still a covenant of grace. This is still the fallen world. There is still sin. And thus, any sort of covenant between God and man comes under the recognition that there is sin. The the promise is essentially not obtained by obedience to the law. This is the point that Paul would end up making in reference to the uh, Judaizers and the opponents in Galatians 3, which we'll get to. But, and this is precisely where uh, Bobbing had said a moment ago on Abraham responding in faith. The promise obtained in faith. So really one of the, the questions then becomes what's the relation between faith and law, right? That relationship between grace and law. Law and gospel. Law and gospel. Uh, are they totally opposed to each other? You'll have some uh, groups that are going to emphasize the purpose of the law 
where, you know, we have to obey it so much to the T that our salvation is caught up in it pretty much. That even faith has to be so much identified with obedience that they turn Christianity into legalism and into pure ethics, as we've pretty much spoken about. The flip side, many will say that the law has nothing to do with the life of the Christian. It has nothing to do with us. The law serves no functional, no practical purpose in the life of the Christian. There's Many different forms this can take. Some say that the law belongs completely to the Old Testament, to the Old Covenant. With the coming of Christ, it has completely passed away. It means nothing to us anymore. We don't even really need to think about it. It goes away. There's others that say that the law serves no purpose whatsoever except to point us to Christ. And then once we're pointed to Christ, we don't have to worry about it anymore. So many different forms that this antinomianism can take. Anti, of course, meaning against. Nomian, coming from nomos, the Greek word that occurs in the New Testament for law. It's a common problem as well. But Bavink kind of jerks the rug out from under the debate. Bavink goes so far as to say at the bottom of page 62 that these various forms of legalism, uh, these various forms of, like, for instance, religious Judaism and legalistic Judaism, as well as the antinomianism that rejects the law, they often meet in one and the same error because they're both failing to recognize what the law actually is for. And this is where Paul is helpful to us, and Bob Inc. begins to unpack Paul, beginning there at the bottom of page 62. So Bob Inc. hits this on this kind of excursus on the law in several primary points, mostly uh, worked out from Paul. He says uh, there, starting from page 63, first, the law is something that was added to the promise, something that came later and was not connected with it originally. Now, the law has always existed in the sense of it being tied up in God's holiness, that place of his origin. So that's not exactly what Bob Inc. is getting at here. He's speaking of the laws, the sanctions, the regulations, the prescriptions that were specifically given to the people of God, first in the Old Covenant in Israel. So he said, uh, many years passed after the promise before the law was proclaimed. So in the first place, you know, God gives the promise to Abraham, but he does not give extensive prescriptions, uh, much more really than that of circumcision. The law then that that's given to the people of God has a specific role in the covenant of grace as it's unfolding, as it's expanding uh, and ultimately leading up to Christ. Uh, so the role of the law in this period of the Israelite people as a nation uh, in the old covenant system is uh, temporary. Right. It has a very specific function. Namely, to bring about the fulfillment of the promise. Basically, the, the law serves the promise. There's this particular function and uh, role of the law in the Old Covenant people, in the Old Testament people of God. The role of the law changes what the law was preparing its way for, what the law was needed for, which was the arrival of the Messiah and his work of salvation. Bobbing references, uh, one of his references here is uh, Galatians 3, verses 17 to 19. Uh, and this is basically where Paul is going and contrasting the Abrahamic and Mosaic periods of the Old Testament. Paul basically says that the inheritance of God's blessing isn't at all based on the law, but on promise. And so ultimately, even though the law has a particular function, a temporary function even, in the Old Testament, the primary thing is still the promise. 
And the law anticipates the fulfillment of the promise in Christ, but in the meanwhile serves various functions for the people before. It serves the function to, through types and shadows, reveal to them Christ, to express to them Christ and his atoning work, his redemptive work, through things like sacrifices, through things like priestly rituals, washings, what have you. It also has the function of the preservation of the nation, the preservation of society, of a people through which the Messiah will come. And then you also see this role of the law in norming behavior of God's people. You know, this is how you are to live in this world. And you can see sort of a rough correspondence to the three uses of the law as we talk about them even now, uh, even as they exist under the new covenant, the use for the pointing to Christ and then the use for the restraint of evil generally, and then the use for norming the life of believers. It's encapsulating. The law is pertinent to then every area of life of the people of God is basically what you're saying, right? The moral the civic, the promise itself, the response, and then also the worship and temple practices. It's for every single area. Right. It has a covenantal purpose. Interesting that the second point that Bobbing points out on this is that in this covenantal purpose in the Old Testament, and as I've mentioned uh, a moment ago, even though the law has its origin in God and God's holiness and in God's very own nature, when God goes and declares this to the covenant people, he uses mediation. Bobbing notes that from God's side, the law is given by means of angels, through this gathering on the mountain with thunder and lightning and these dark storm clouds, the loud voice coming from heaven. And then from the people's side, there's a mediator to go up to the mountain, uh, Moses, to speak with God on behalf of the people. There is a mediator. In a certain way, there's a frightening thing about the law. The promise, though, is not mediated, but directly given by God. The promise is given by the word of God himself. Right, directly. God appeared to Abraham and gave the promise, as opposed to the law being given through Moses, a mediator. Do you think that, in a way, that hints very much what Bobbing just said here, how the law, even in its giving and the necessity of a mediator, I mean, it shows that the law can't really be isolated from the promise in, in the way that there's no way to really uh, obey that law without the promise of the word of God being involved in it, right? All right, because as we've already talked about, this is a dispensation and administration of the covenant of grace. There's sin, and we're going to break this law. The people of Israel many times in many ways break this law. The law by itself is not sufficient to save them. They are sinners. They bear the guilt for Adam's sin. They bear the guilt for their own sin. The law by itself isn't going to save anyone. If the law is based in God's holiness, this means that this law is the rule or prescription of righteousness. Therein's the problem that can't be fulfilled by us, by, by fallen man. We who are unrighteous do not know righteousness, and it requires not only the law to tell us, hey, we need to be righteous, but we need a way to be righteous by nature. And there is the requirement then of the promise given and then fulfilled in Christ. And Bavink gets at this in his third point in discussing the purposes of the law. He talks about the law and the promise 
they're not in conflict. They're not enemies. It's not like law, bad, promise, good. But there is a difference in kind. There's a difference in purpose. They're not meant to do the same things. The law is not meant to save us. The promise is where salvation is revealed. It began to be revealed at the fall with Adam and Eve. It had been revealed to Abraham in the covenant with Abraham. The promise is already there. The law doesn't change the promise, and salvation comes through the promise. The law, as we've already hinted at, has different purposes. Right, and this is where Paul says then the law is not of faith, and that's what he's really getting at there. Right. The the law does not belong to the things of promise, the things of salvation. Not that it's an enemy of them, but it's just it's it's doing something else. It's there for something else. Just one quick example would be circumcision, not just from Abraham, where it had its basis in Abraham in the covenant of promise, but it was something that was to be continued on for the people of God, people that were given the law at Sinai. They also had to be circumcised in order to be a part of the people of God to also adhere to the law. But circumcision would never save them. It wasn't circumcision that would save them in adhering to that. But by looking to what was the very reason why they were obeying and circumcising their children, the promise that God said, I shall be your God and you shall be my people, and trusting in him and bringing about all the blessings that accompany that. Right. It's the sign. It's not the thing signified. Similar to how we would approach the sacraments as we um, associate circumcision with baptism. There's there's functions, but those functions ultimately point to uh, something else, a greater substance in reality. An antithesis to law gospel, if you will, or in one manner, or perhaps more accurately, if I recall, O. Palmer Robertson saying something to the effect of this contrast between law covenant and promise covenant but they work together. There is a unity in it according to God's purposes. And this is then that fourth point that Bobbing gets at the bottom of page 63. The special purpose which is proper to the law and for which God gave the law, which has a twofold character. So the twofold character of the purpose of the law. It was added to the promise because of transgressions. That is to make the transgressions more severe. The law is given then in Galatians 3.19, Paul says that the law is given for his purpose then of to reveal sin, to expose the wickedness of fallen humanity. The law is meant to basically expose our nakedness and our shame. So what the law is doing here is it is basically revealing the seriousness of sin, the sinfulness of sin. It's one thing to sin against, you know, what we know in our our hearts, our minds, our consciences to be right and wrong. But here we have explicit revelation of God of these things you shall do and these things you shall not do. And to violate those, it's basically an intensification of sin. What's presented then to the people of God at Sinai is that... There is a standard of righteousness. And Paul explains this in Romans 5.13, where he says, sin was uh, certainly in the world before the law was given at, at Sinai. And he says that sin was not counted where there is no law. Now, he's not saying that, you know, God didn't go and condemn people before uh, he gave the law. In fact, he, he says there in the next verse in 5.14, uh, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who did not sin in the way that Adam transgressed. Adam, who also had the standard of righteousness in the garden. Death reigned. So we still see the great uh, effects of sin from the fall to Moses. But what is given at Sinai is the 
explicit proclamation to people that are being brought into fellowship with God by a covenant. They're being told the terms of righteousness, the standard of righteousness and righteous uh, living in light of their relationship with God. Those who are not in covenant with the Lord, who have not had the law explicitly proclaimed to them, the statutes of righteous living in fellowship with the Lord, those Gentiles, you know, their sin is simply sin. As Bobbing says in uh, that second paragraph on page 64, right there in the middle, where there is no such law, sin remains sin. Right. But there is no transgression proper. So he, he's showing the distinction that Paul makes between merely sin, or as first John would say, uh, sin is lawlessness and transgression, which is the breaking of relationship of covenant living, which as as Andrew had mentioned a moment ago in the Old Testament, this encapsulated uh, all of life in the civil laws, daily individual life and morals, ritual washings, uh, ceremonial worship, all these various areas of life that were regulated, that were directed by the law of God given at Sinai. The breaking of that is the transgression that Paul speaks of. So sin is simply lawlessness, but then there is transgression. From Romans 3.20, Paul explains a saying, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So there he's stating, okay, the law wasn't given for salvation, for justification. He says that through the law, rather, comes knowledge of sin. So what's given at Sinai are things that say, hey, Don't act this way. Don't be this way because it is not righteous. It is not what God is calling you to. It is anti-God. It's disobedience. And so being told this at Sinai, when those who are in covenant fellowship with the Lord disregard that in sin, it's not merely sin as lawlessness, but transgression. It's covenant breaking. And this necessarily incurs the wrath of God. It is worthy of the wrath of God, as Boving says, getting near the end of page 65. And then he says, Hence, if in the Old Testament there are people who have received the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, they do not owe that to the law because all the law is doing is, you know, bringing people under this wrath, but to the promise. That is, if you will, and to use the terminology that Bavink uses, the negative purpose of the law, as he says, the increase of transgressions and the aggravation of judgment, the introduction of this category of a transgression where God has revealed to you specifically how you ought to live and how you ought to worship and rebellion against that, rejection of that, violation of that. But there is also a positive side, a positive aspect to this law, which was to point us to the need of the promise, to point us to the need for justification of sinners, for the need for a righteousness not our own, because our own righteousness is clearly deficient. So we see the negative purpose, this aggravation of sin, this transgression, but then also the law as a pedagogue, as a teacher, pointing Israel to the promise, pointing them to their need for salvation, pointing them to their need for, through the types and shadows, the coming Christ. Yeah, for a righteousness 
in obedience that doesn't come from us, but a foreign righteousness, a righteousness that comes from outside of us, from someone that can perfectly fulfill the law on our behalf. The need of someone to once and for all give a a ritual cleansing, a sacrificial cleansing and offering for us. Yeah. And now while this is a podcast on and so typically we would use, you know, the uh, three forms of unity in the continental Dutch tradition. The Westminster Confession of Faith is very helpful here uh, in chapter 19.6, which uh, explains uh, what Bob Inc. was just speaking about. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, Yet is it of great use to them, as well as to others, in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly. And so that's what's uh, in one manner going on here with the giving of the law, particularly in the Old Testament as a pedagogue, as a teacher, informing them to the will of God as a rule of life, to duty in directing and binding us to walk accordingly, and to also then, in a negative sense, if you will, uh, discover also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin. And then back to the positive sense here in Westminster 19.6, together with a clearer sight of the need that they have of Christ, or in the case of Old Testament, they need a mediator. This is why, as Bob Inc. noted, as we said in page 63, the law is given on the side of the people, there was a mediator involved. Moses had to go up. There was a need of mediation, even after Moses would die. Where was that mediator? Right, and you see that worked out throughout the Old Testament. They have the priests who are that mediator to God in that they're the ones who can enter the holy places and offer the sacrifices and do the priestly service. But even then, I mean, those priests, they don't keep the law perfectly. They're not sinless. They're not worthy of the office they hold. It, too, reveals the imperfections, reveals the inadequacies of this system, of this administration of the law. So Bavink has laid this groundwork talking about the law and its reasons. In the next few pages, he unpacks this in a little more detail, the purposes of the law, the relationship between grace before the law and grace under the law. It's the same. It's this purpose of continued development and fulfillment of the promise. So basically, the next few pages are just kind of filling in more details on what we've talked about in these purposes of the law. That, that's all there for you to read and enjoy. But I think for now, we've reached a good stopping point. So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and pause for now. And then we will pick up again next time talking about the characteristics of the law, government of the law, a few more aspects of the law that Bovink takes up in the remaining parts of this chapter. Thank you for listening to Bovcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you've learned something. As always, if you have any feedback, you can email us, bovcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Get your friends and family to subscribe. Borrow their phones and subscribe for them. Do whatever you must do, but spread the word about Bobcast. 
uh, raise up pigeons and train them to uh, deliver little tiny letters attached to their legs to everyone that you can think of. Uh, no particular direction. Write on those little letters just the word Bobcast. They'll figure it out. Yeah, I don't know. Training uh, carrier pigeons is really an art form. And yet a science. Scientific art. Are we going to get to the zines? We could, I guess. I don't know. Should we? <laughs> we can just cut it there. Okay. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.